0: Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done, perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20.
1: Before we jump into today's show, we have been getting a ton of new listeners lately. If that's you, welcome. As you longtime listeners know, CityCast DC is all about connecting you with your city. We've got local news, things to do, and conversations with our most interesting residents. We're here every weekday and we hope you make it a habit. Today on CityCast DC, DC has built a ton of housing over the last 20 years, but it's mostly been in a very small number of neighborhoods. And the city still has a big problem when it comes to having enough houses for the folks who live here. Why did it develop like this and what is next? GW University's Leah Brooks studies this for a living, and she's here to talk to us about some pretty remarkable new research. Today is Monday, November 20th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Hi, Mike. So you and your colleague Jenny Schutz wrote this paper about how D.C. has built a ton of housing over the past 20 years, which we've needed to do because the city's population has grown by like 130,000 people. But this housing has mostly been in a rather small number of specific neighborhoods. Which neighborhoods are they?
2: So the census divides the city into about 433 neighborhoods. There are 10 neighborhoods that account for 40% of the new housing. And so two great examples of those neighborhoods, the top one in the entire city is Navy Yard. One in the second set of five is north part of Foggy Bottom. They're all centrally located neighborhoods. Nothing is much north of DuPont Circle.
1: So why did it all happen in just these specific neighborhoods?
2: Jenny and I think that the reasons for that are the same reasons that it's really hard to build housing anywhere. People don't generally like new housing near them because new housing brings traffic and people, people you might like, you might not like, and more noise and more congestion. And the places where almost all of this really substantial amount of new housing got built are places that had, for the most part, decayed industrial infrastructure. In Navy Yard, I think you can see that really clearly. If you'd been to Navy Yard before its renovation there just was not too much there, like an asphalt plant, um, some decaying buildings. In Foggy Bottom, you might not think, oh, that's not a decayed industrial area. But Foggy Bottom did have some large buildings that were being either no longer useful for their current use or that were repurposed from in a commercial use to a residential use.
1: And you had a phenomenon in the last few years where neighborhoods that people didn't even know existed uh, have been invented, uh, like NOMA.
2: Yes. In fact, NOMA actually didn't make it on our list. And the reason is NOMA is too new for our list. (laughs) So if we were to add a neighborhood to our list, because our data ended um, in 2020, but the 2020 was really an average of the last five years before 2020. So we just didn't, we didn't get to NOMA. And NOMA is another great example of a place with a bunch of decayed industrial infrastructure that was repurposed into residential units.
1: So for the uninitiated, NOMA is north of Massachusetts, NOMA, um, and uh, takes advantage of a lot of the sort of disused area around Union Station.
2: Absolutely. And I want to point out, I think one of Metro's great investments, maybe over the past decade has been, I think longer than that, I should say, has been the new stop they put in at NOMA. There wasn't a stop at Noma. They filled in that line with an additional metro stop. And I think that metro stop helped create a really viable and valuable neighborhood there.
1: So there's all this housing on these rather small parts of land. Can you characterize the housing? What kind of new stock got built in Washington?
2: Almost all of this new housing that that has gotten built in D.C. is multifamily housing. And Jenny and I didn't look in this paper... Uh, whether it was mostly owner occupied housing or or renter occupied housing but i think it's safe to say that at least my guess would be that at least half of it is renter occupied housing and you know housing economists always go around telling people part of the reason housing prices are so high is because we haven't built much new housing and i think sometimes people look at economists and say you guys are crazy You know when people build new housing it's just for rich people why does building housing for rich people help anybody else but rich people and i in some ways dc is a great case for hey mostly rich people live in this new housing but a senior planner in dc told me that the inflation adjusted rent for apartments in dc really hasn't grown much in the last decade
1: so the the logic is you build a new apartment or condo development in navy yard And the people who move there, because they're able to move there, they won't then be gentrifying, you know, turkey thicket.
2: That's right. And, you know, I know why politicians don't say that, because it's terrible to say to a low-income person, hey, I'm making your apartment more affordable because the rich guy is moving somewhere nicer. And so you can (laughs) get the place that the rich guy has just moved out of, and you can live there affordably. I mean, it's like, it's not a kind thing to say, but it's a truthful thing to say. And that's why an economist tells you, that building more housing benefits not just the people for whom the new housing is built, but also people who were moving into the housing that those rich people either used to live in or would have lived in in the absence of the new housing.
0: When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out.
1: So, we've talked on our show previously about how DC's managed to take parcels of land that were previously unused, like at Poplar Point or the McMillan site, and is turning them into housing. But there's only so many such parcels that exist. What happens when that land runs out?
2: Oh, Mike, I don't want to be pessimistic like that. Um, partially because, and this is like the optimism of pessimism, I don't know, like there's always a next disaster, right? Like if you think about the housing in Georgetown that's built along the river. That's fancy housing, and it's built on what used to be decayed industrial infrastructure, but now seems like pretty expensive land. I'm thinking of the neighborhood that's just after the Whitehurst Freeway that faces the river. And I'm not sure when you built that housing in Georgetown, you would have thought that some of the places where we're building housing now, like maybe the warehouses in Noma, might have actually still been used at that point and not a viable place to build housing. But then- you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you think about it, the land in the back of Union Station there become unviable as commercial uses, or at least less viable for commercials than it uses than it became for residential uses. And it was able to turn over. And, you know, maybe the silver lining of the pandemic is that it's given us buildings downtown that will be able to convert from commercial to residential. And I want to say the other thing that I think Jenny and I sh- learned from this paper is that you don't need a lot of land to build a lot of housing.
1: So I guess the pessimistic question I'm trying to get at is upzoning, is getting more intense use in existing neighborhoods always going to be as difficult as it is now? Are we always going to have to look for uh, unused plots because actually adding more capacity to existing neighborhoods is going to be a political nightmare?
2: My answer is I'm not sure, and I'll tell you I'll tell you why. Like, part of me thinks, well, if enough people get priced out of housing, they will be so mad that they will turn the politics of this, which I think in, currently the politics is owners in single family residential neighborhoods exert a lot of power about what gets built in their neighborhood, and they're pretty successful at limiting housing near them. So part of me thinks, well, if they're so successful, they'll make so many people unhappy. That then the politics will change and politicians will just require new housing to be built. That's the sort of like the optimistic view, I guess. The less optimistic view is some of those people are going to become homeowners. And once those people become homeowners, they no longer have any incentive to start lobbying, you know, for more housing because they already have their housing. I think it's a big open question. I spoke with a politician in Arlington. Arlington has had this big campaign to change their zoning, to allow for the building of more housing. And she said to me, I think this is entirely a generational issue, that young people who can't buy housing are really mad, and old people like you, she didn't say like that, but I think it was true, you know, who already have their house, you don't care as much because you have a house. Um, And I... I don't know. She might be right. It might be a generational issue, but she might not be. Like some of these young people are going to be able to afford a house, and then once they have a house, I'm not sure how they're going to feel.
1: Your view in this conversation uh, is, or this this the person you're talking to is thinking, "Hey, the next generation, the younger generations, are inherently less nimby-ish than the older ones."
2: Mm, I don't. Know if they're inherently less NIMBYish but they don't have a house to be nimby about.
1: Right, but but you and you were saying uh, that uh, actually maybe they're just not NIMBYish because they ain't got houses, and once they do, they'll become just as NIMBYish as anyone else.
2: I think it's true. There's a there's a quote I don't know who it's attributed to, an environmentalist is someone who already has a cabin in the woods.
1: <laughs> well, so so here is my sort of generational question too. As you said, a lot of the housing, and D.C. has done a pretty good job of bringing new housing online. But it's two-bedroom apartments, one-bedroom apartments, maybe the occasional three-bedroom apartment, but not even very many of those. Is there any belief that we could create a city, that we are going to become a city where folks who live in the two-bedroom apartments will continue to live in that sort of setting after they have kids, as their kids become teenagers, et cetera?
2: Mike, I'm an economist, so I think if the house is expensive enough, people will live in an apartment.
1: Asking a sociological question to an economist. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm
2: sorry. I, I, <laughs> you told me your mother was an economist, so I thought you'd be sympathetic. I, I think people's behavior is driven by the by the prices they face. And if things are too expensive, their behavior is going to change to reflect that. Now, it might be that, you know, things have to get a lot more expensive. Like Maybe we're still hundreds of thousands of dollars away from that being willing to live in an apartment outcome. But I don't view it as entirely impossible, but possibly not very soon.
1: Is there any possibility or any place where the city could bring actual like single family houses online, even if they're, I mean, they don't have to be like suburban ones with yards, but like, like a row house or something?
2: Well, I think what you see in a lot of the new multifamily development is that at the bottom of the multifamily development, at least in less dense places, developers put these sort of like quasi townhomes at the bottom. My impression is that's because the bottom story of an apartment is very unattractive to tenants. So if you make the bottom story look like townhomes, hmm. instead of like apartments, like instead of like the ground floor apartment, blah, who wants to live there, you have a townhome. A townhome is something different, more attractive. Um, so you see that. Uh, I live near Walter Reed, the old Walter Reed that's being redeveloped. And there, there there's some uh, townhomes as part of the redevelopment. But my impression is the townhome part of the redevelopment is mostly to make the neighbors in the single family homes that face the redevelopment feel less anxious. So they're facing like quasi single family homes instead of multifamily buildings. And if I were advising the city, I would be hard-pressed to tell the city that they should use land to build single-family homes. When you zone land for single-family home, you're making it unusable for a very, potentially very, very, very long time for much more affordable uses for lots of people.
1: All of these, this conversation is sort of premised on the notion that D.C. is going to continue to expand and populations can to continue to need new housing because otherwise no one will be able to afford to live here. But the pandemic had raised all these concerns about city flight, people leaving, people going to distant cities or just places with more space around them, uh, businesses following them uh, out of town. Do you think we are going to continue to need new housing?
2: I think it's a great question. If you'd asked me maybe a year and a half ago, I think I would have been less optimistic, but I think I'm a little more optimistic now. I think the recent numbers suggest that Young people are coming back to D.C. That population loss has at least stopped, even if we haven't hit a population gain again. And I think D.C. is very lucky in that its primary business activity requires plenty of face-to-face schmoozing. There's almost no city that has a primary business that requires as much in-person schmoozing as our primary business here in Washington, D.C., I don't think there's a substitute for, like, the lobbyist buying his client or a congressman a drink at a bar. Like, you can, there's some of that you can do on Zoom, but I think you're really hard-pressed to do the best of that.
1: Corruption. It requires face-to-face behavior.
2: <laughs> let's, let's let's reframe it as, as networking. How about that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Leah, I'm glad you were in our network. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: That is all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, tell everyone about CityCast when they are starting to have an argument at your Thanksgiving table this week. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.
2: That is a great question, Mike. I I aim to ask
1: great questions at all times.
2: (laughs) It's your job.